So tonight is the third part of the talks I've been giving on the Sure Hearts release. And this part has to do with bhavana, the cultivation of the mind and the heart. As we all have seen in our practice here, gradually each one of us has come to see the nature of this body and mind continuum, this body and mind process more and more clearly. It happens with the continuity of awareness. Wisdom deepens into understanding the true nature of life. Not because we've read it anywhere or because we hear words over and over again and then we memorize them, but because we actually see with our own experience, through our own experience, how it is. So the heart and the mind begin to unfurl, begin to unfold and expose what has been hidden for a long time or what has not been seen so clearly. It's not been seen because of avijja. Avijja that Guy spoke about not so long ago is not knowing, ignorance. Or it's not been seen because of moha, delusion. Or as one of my colleagues says, seeing it but really getting it wrong, really not seeing it correctly. I came across this uh, writing by David Borstein in the book Discoveries, which is the history of humanities and the discoveries of the last 500 years, where he said in the preface that scanning through the history of humanities discoveries, it becomes apparent that the greatest obstacle to knowledge is not ignorance, it is the illusion of knowledge. It is thinking that you know something that in fact you do not. Mark Twain says it differently. It ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble, but it's what you do know that ain't so. Like like seeing things as permanent when they're really impermanent, seeing things as self when it's really not self. So this is moha, actually, seeing but getting it wrong. So as we do our practice, we become more and more adept of how to bring a sobering honesty to our moment-to-moment experience, to what's actually going on instead of overlaying concepts on it. Even when it's difficult to bear, we can still know how to get to that more relaxed and clear place of awareness so that awareness can reflect exactly and clearly, without a doubt, what's going on moment-to-moment. So there are ever-deepening, profound truths that come to bear upon our own uh, mind and heart. They become more easily known, and bit by bit it frees the mind and heart from ways that it has seen life before, and it begins to drop in new ways that life is seen. It frees the heart from past and present ignorance, which is a fuel for greed and hatred. So this wisdom arises more and more easily as we do our practice so that no matter what comes into view, there's this ability to be with it, with courage, with relaxed, compassionate awareness. And then wisdom can open very easily from that. So tonight I'd like to complete the three pillars of the Dharma that I started to talk about a few nights ago, last week. And um, this was something that was named by Manindraji. It's not, these three pillars are not found in the suttas anywhere, but he talked about these three pillars as a sturdy foundation upon which we can build our lives and our practice and our ability to see further than what we can see now. And they were, first of all, dana, the practice of generosity, and then sila, the practice of living in harmony, and then also this part, bhavana, bringing forth wisdom that really frees the mind. So I'd like to... um, remind you 
about this Sure Heart's release that I read the other two times. These are the Buddha's words. This comes from the Majjhima Nikaya, the simile of the heartwood. So this holy life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and, wi- and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind, the sure heart's release, that is the goal of the holy life, its heartwood and its end. So here and in other parts of the ancient scriptures, the Buddha makes it really clear that all of these virtuous conduct, through generosity and through following the precepts, wholesome speech and behavior, concentration, knowledge and vision, these are all wonderful and beautiful aspects of the Dhamma and they bring us great happiness in the holy life. But they're not the complete path. They're not the whole of the holy life. There is something beyond that and this is what I want to describe this evening. He pointed the way The Buddha pointed the way very clearly to a very sure heart's release, the unshakable deliverance from greed, hatred, and delusion. So it gives us a a way that maybe we can see further and um, maybe not limit our aspiration, but maybe we can't even know what could be further on, but we could keep open to the possibility that there is something further than these kinds of happinesses that the Dhamma can give us. So what the Buddha here was talking about was the ultimate reality of the unconditioned that comes in stages, that's accomplished in stages. This unconditioned is the complete relinquishing of craving, the complete relinquishing of hatred and ignorance and delusion, the extinction of all suffering. Again, it happens gradually in stages. It's not, it would be very rare if it happened all at once. So when I talked last time about the two other pillars of the Dharma, there was mindful practice of living with a generous heart and acting on that generous heart, acting on the intention to give. So actually giving. And then there was living in harmony, actively refraining from speech or behavior that would harm others and especially would harm our own karmic stream. So in that I spoke about hiri and otapa, respect for others and respect for ourselves. So these practices alone can bring us a lot of great happiness and a lot of stability in our lives. A sense of in violable well-being, where we may experience bumpiness and sometimes a lot of ups and downs in our lives, but there's this very deep, unshakable faith that it can always come back to some very deep inner stability of knowing that, for example, this is just part of my path, these ups and downs of life, and they will come and go, as all things do. And through that, um, more and more courage, more and more compassion develops. And sometimes that those ups and downs are for that very reason, to give us more courage to face what we need to face on the path. So practicing all of them allows the inner world to really relax because we can really depend on ourselves, we can really rely on ourselves. And we're not constricted with a lot of regret or guilt or our minds don't have to go round and round even in remorse, which can be quite healthy. But we don't have to spend a lot of energy in doing that. So this produces a powerful sense of faith when we have that as a basis. The ability to really um, practice generosity of heart and the um, and the ability to really practice living in harmony with others and ourselves. For me, I I have a feeling that whatever comes, it may be really hard, but I can navigate it. And um, I really have found that to be true. It's not just kind of um, a concept that I smear onto my life, 
but I just know that this is really hard right now and this mind and heart can overcome it. There's no doubt about it. So we're not caught in doubt or we're less likely to, um, to kind of roll around in, in afflicting ourselves more and more depending on the kind of karma. And we also can go into places in ourselves where there can be a deep calm and a deep sense of uh, stability in our minds. And it gives us a sense of rest as we go along in our practice. Even the Buddha, I read in different suttas where the Buddha would have trouble in his own life, you know, and then he would have to go away to the forest and just be with the animals sometimes and <laughs> go into a place where he can have some deep rest in himself. And I find this to be very, very helpful for my own practice. So to have the capacity to go into that place of myself where there can be a calm abiding, there can be a sense that um, I really depend and rely upon um, the practice of letting go deeply, uh, even though sometimes it's hard, or I can really rely upon looking at the precepts of non-harming that I take and know that that's really true. Sometimes I flub up a little bit or sometimes maybe a lot, but I know I can come back to being um, that kind of human being that stays in harmony with life, no matter what. So the inherent capacity that we can do this um, is part of our birthright when we practice. It's not dependent, it it doesn't become dependent on anything else in this world um, outside of us, on people saying that you're a good person or um, we don't have to get affirmation from others. We can know for ourselves what's right in our own minds and hearts. So because we're not caught in a lot of doubt about ourselves, we tend to be able to see the path of practice with less doubt and to be able to go forth with a, a feeling of this can happen. There can be the courage and compassion in the heart to keep going forth no matter how hard it is. It's a capacity we all have to experience a peace and happiness that we never could even think of that's possible in our lives. And this is a kind of peace and happiness the Buddha talked about that's not dependent or not conditioned upon anything in this world. So it can still be possible even though the world can be tumbling in its ups and downs and even affect us now and then, there's a possibility that the mind and heart can see that um, to experience the unconditioned, to know that the unconditioned is a place where there can be a very, very deep rest and beyond anything of this world. So it goes beyond the understanding of really even giving It goes beyond the understanding of generosity, beyond sila, living in harmony. The happiness is so much greater than even those happinesses. So this talk is meant to help you understand the long-range view of practice of this path, of this journey, to make it possible for all of us to see what is beyond and what cannot be described sometimes. It's said that If one doesn't hear this, then one doesn't know it's possible. When I was younger in my practice, I used to hear these things and and say to myself, "Well, yeah, maybe," (laughs) and uh, but kept hearing it, kept hearing it. I think all of us here on the stage were lived in the times when we would hear about people um, experiencing the unconditioned nibbana and realized that from other people's experiences, really deep peace. And so uh, it was talked about. But then, you know, as time went on, we, we see that oh, people get, can become, even have craving for that. And so in the Dhamma, I think it, it became, Nibbana became less talked about. But now it's, it's coming into uh, print and coming into... Dhamma talks even more these days. So 
it's possible to see beyond whatever goals you have. Because whatever goals you have are usually in the conditioned realm of existence. It's very, it's almost impossible to have a goal beyond that. But to actually know that there's a possibility to have a goal beyond what's in this conditioned reality is um, important to have, to understand that it's possible to go beyond. To stay open to far-reaching possibilities and at the same time understand that it's wonderful, it's worthy to practice loving-kindness, to be virtuous, to practice generosity, to practice concentration, to be more knowledgeable in the Dhamma, to be a good meditator. That's all beautiful and possible, but there's something deeper than that. So Donna and Sila are sturdy foundations to give faith in ourselves, in our spiritual well-being. We grow more in a surety within ourselves, and we're more able to practice the third pillar, which is bhavana. I'm going to fill that out more tonight. And bhavana means bringing forth what has not yet been developed, Um, developing the mind and heart, its uh, mental development. And when we talk about mind, we also are are talking about the heart. They're synonymous. So when we say the heart, it means the mind. It's all um, together. So in Western culture, mental development usually means acquiring something, even acquiring knowledge, learning and applying that in the world. It could be acquiring or having blissful states of mind in the meditative field. That could be true. But deep states of concentration, yes, that's also true. That can happen. But from the perspective of the teachings of the Buddha, mental development is also about understanding and strengthening capabilities which actually liberate it from being entrenched in ignorance, in greed, and in hatred. Totally liberating that from the mind, the habit patterns of the mind. So it weakens as the practice goes along. Gradually this greed, hatred, and delusion weakens and it's finally totally uprooted. And it's not by overlaying ideas that we've heard from our teachers or from anyone else in the Dharma or from reading something or from hearing something, but it's from truly experiencing it through direct knowledge, direct experience. So there are two areas of heart and mental development. The first area I want to talk about is samatha. Uh, These are concentration practices and by themselves leads, it leads to deep calmness and tranquility. Guy spoke about the other night the seven factors of enlightenment and in that we understand that deep calmness, tranquility and um, concentration are really important uh, states of mind to establish, to practice um, because it really helps us to uh, deepen that seclusion of the mind from the hindrances and to prepare ourselves with, for really deep stability of the mind. There's stability, clarity, and strength that's developed from samatha practices, concentration practices. These are really needed. They're absolutely essential because it helps to support the emergence of right view, right understanding. For the mind to really face um, this understanding of right view, to see things as they really are, it needs this very stable kind of mind and heart. Because it, it can really shake the mind up to see things as they really are. So this, these These samatha practices that bring deep concentration makes the mind serviceable. There's an ability to see what's going on in the mind-body continuum, in the process of the mind and the body, and it really um, gives us that stability to face what we need to face 
what the mind needs to face. So that's the first area of development, and I'll fill that out a little more. And the second area of developing in bhavana is the development of wisdom. It's bringing forth this understanding of right view in a, in a really ever-deepening way, more and more. I'm just remembering now when I, I heard this talk a long time ago, there was um, one of my teacher monks was here, and um, there were other talks being given, and the other talks were very entertaining, but he said, I, he apologized, and he said, this talk is not like a um, dessert or a good meal, but it's more like medicine. So <laughs> you really have to, because it's going to help you to heal your wrong understanding of the practice and of life. So it's, it's important to listen carefully and take in what you can. So this second area of bhavana, the development of wisdom, it's through the practice of satipatthana, vipassana, not samatha. Samatha's concentration, satipatthana, vipassana, is uh, the practice of liberating insight. And satipatthana means uh, on the four foundations. These Sati is mindfulness, patana. Pa is extraordinary mindfulness. And tana is on the foundations and of mindfulness that um, I think Sally filled out so beautifully in the past nights. So this gives us um, liberating insight and leads directly to this unconditioned state, peace of Nibbana. This uh, Satipatthana Vipassana leads to the, the unconditioned and really to the uprooting of all the defilements. But um, Samatha does not do that. Samatha gives us very deep blissful states, uh, but it does not lead to insight into the true nature of reality and to the unconditioned, which is the uprooting of all the um, defilements. So samatha, what about that? How can I fill that out for you? I'm going to give a very short and um, general view of it. These are concentration practices. The Buddha taught many concentration practices. Um, He taught practices like on a kasina, like a sphere of light, uh, on the breath, on the concept of the in and out, rising and falling of the breath. And the one that we're most familiar with here in this retreat, which we're using in two ways, is the metta practice, practice of metta. It softens the heart. It makes the heart more pliable, uh, the ability to open to things as they are without uh, reactivity, with less reactivity. Um, But it also really develops concentration, a certain degree of concentration. So in concentration practices, um, mental energy is repeatedly directed and focused on particular objects of meditation over and over again. In metta, it's it's all around the metta practice and developing metta itself. It's, um, It's focused on say, the phrases, which change, actually, but it's still in the, in the realm of metta. It gets focused on the person that we see. It gets focused on our ability to see the goodness in that person or in ourselves. So it's still around the, this framework of metta. Or there can be a kasina, a sphere of color, the breath. But this... Attention, this mental energy of concentration goes to that, um, that uh, object that we've chosen over and over and over again, very continuously. When awareness falls away from that particular experience uh, and goes to something else, the, the guidance is to ignore what it went to and come right back to the experience to continually ignore what it goes to and come back to the experience. So we're actually ignoring what comes up. Even when the hindrances come up, we come back to the experience of metta. 
So in time, all of that energized attention becomes so strong that nothing else can come into the mind stream. The energy is streaming towards a particular object or areas of object like metta, and it is streamlined into that area. So it creates a very, very strong force field. And so you can imagine energy going in, energy going in, and the force field becomes so strong that the hindrances feel like they're far away. They're, they feel like they're what we call at bay. And they may come and it kind of like bounces off of that force field. Or what happens is it feels like um, it's a faraway sound or a faraway experience even in the body. Sharp experiences of pain in the body become very soft and not bothersome at all. Um, what we thought was pain is just becomes little sensations arising and passing away, but very far. So this streamlining towards a particular object helps the mind become absorbed in that object. And it becomes so absorbed that it feels uh, very, very beautiful when we're in that place. Um, and, and this is because there are no defilements coming in during that time. So there's a feeling of extraordinary calm during this time, extraordinary tranquility. It feels like incredible protection, seclusion of mind from all the hindrances. There's a profound sense that ordinary experiences of the world are far, far away. And um, there's a sense that they're not going to come in. So it's a very enjoyable, refined mental seclusion that one feels. This seclusion is praised by the Buddha and all the enlightened ones. Um, It was a very exalted um, way of describing it. Uh, and wasn't it was never kind of um, degraded at all. It was some of the first practices that the Buddha taught uh, before even teaching Satipatthana Vipassana. So <clears throat> this absorption and this um, concentration, this very deep calm, will last as long as one continues to do that practice. And the momentum of the mind will continue to stay focused in that degree uh, of practice and it can be very, very seductive. So when people experience uh, concentration again and when you try to shift them to vipassana, they don't want to (laughs) go because it's so nice to be in that place. You try to get people to note things, you know, to shift to noting the changing nature of what's going on or to notice and they don't want to. They just want to stay there when it's very, very calm and peaceful. And um, but that calm and peace is not going to free the mind. But of course, we want to stay there. I I remember doing metta practice right here, in at IMS with Seda Upandita. So I did metta exclusively for two months here, and it was extraordinary. And so. It's just sort of way beyond, you know, a worldly experience. And every time I'd report these experiences to Upandita, he would say, what is better, the peace of samatha or the peace of vipassana? He would test me, you know, because he wouldn't let you practice, actually. Um, He was one teacher, doesn't let you practice uh, samatha unless he's satisfied with your vipassana practice. So he wouldn't let me be seduced by it, and I, I, could, I wouldn't be seduced by it anyway. So when the practice is stopped, when the practice of vipassana, of uh, samatha is stopped, that deep calm and tranquility and all the hindrances return in time, depending on how weak or how strong your practice has been. Sometimes it can stay for a very long time. When I practice metta for two months here, I only practice metta, sitting and walking and going to the bathroom and eating, and everything I did was metta. And I practiced metta on the benefactor for two months. It didn't change to anything else. So after that, the, 
the practice of deep tranquility lasted a long time, like months, that it could just be really deep. But I knew it wasn't going to lead to liberation. But it was a good practice to understand for me. Um, because I could see the power of it and how it could be seductive to, to anybody else. So one important thing about this um, understanding, this practice as yogis, is it gives us the, under, the realization that the mind has a potential to, to really see something and experience something much deeper than it's experienced in life gives a much deeper fulfillment and um, sees the strength of the mind so, so deeply. Even if it's temporary, it's important to see that temporary freedom from all the hindrances. Um, sometimes we, uh, we see that, some, sometimes we think that, oh, this is it, you know, this is, this is freedom from... Um, from the defilements, but we see the defilements come back when we're not um, practicing in that way anymore. So that's um, samatha, the practice of concentration. It's important to understand its power. The second category of bhavana is the development of liberating insight, wisdom. And so this is through the practice of vipassana, Satipatthana Vipassana, seeing and experiencing the true nature of phenomena. Now it's not this, you know, every day just be present uh, kind of, can I be present with this step and that step? It's much more powerful than that. One time there was a whole um, retreat that was about Satipatthana Vipassana. Every single um, talk for one month was on just that, on what was satipatthana, vipassana, what does it mean? And just in short, as I said before, sati means mindfulness, pa means extraordinary, and tana means what you put your, that extraordinary awareness on. So in this practice, what we put our, this extraordinary and deepening awareness on um, and it becomes extraordinary because as Guy described in the seven factors of enlightenment, that um, mindfulness is the first factor. When all of the other factors become strong one by one, it's not in a particular order. Each one makes the other one stronger. But when there's each one becomes strong and the tranquilizing three factors are in balance with the tranquilizing um, the tranquilizing factors are in balance with the energizing factors, mindfulness becomes very powerful. So that's why it it takes this time, it takes a continuity, it's no small thing to take this time. The, The three things that are really important in your practice that Upandita would remind us of all the time is continuity was the first thing. Clarity with what's happening is the second, and compassion is the third thing. So the three C's he would always remind us of. So in this practice, the, the mindfulness, the awareness is open to the full range of experience. And so uh, Sally filled that out about the four foundations of mindfulness uh, very beautifully last night. And um, listen... Um, in the fourth one last night. Uh, So sensations in the body, feelings, vedana, pleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, uh, or neutral, and um, pleasant, that, neutral and unpleasant. And the full range of mental moods, joy, metta, anger, attachment, um, moods of the mind, the knowing of the six sense doors. And um, in the fourth foundation, I would ask Manindra all the time, what does that mean? And he says, everything else, including everything we just talked about. So Sally was so clear last night, I really understood what Manindra said (laughs) after so many years. (laughs) So thank you, Sally. (laughs) So... um, 
So some yogis may need a primary anchor to to start with and to come back to over and over again. We have to acknowledge that and to respect that. And some yogis cannot use a primary anchor. It has to be open, open attention. And so just see what the mind needs and uh, respect that and go with that. So there is this awareness happening all the time in relationship to whatever the object is arising uh, in moment to moment. And there is this understanding, this deepening understanding of, of the changing nature of everything in all those four foundations of mindfulness. The arising nature, the changing nature, and the passing away nature of everything. Concentration is hugely supportive here. But it's not concentration on one particular object. It's concentration on changing objects. This is the big difference between samatha and vipassana. Samatha takes one particular object and vipassana takes whatever object is arising that's uh, predominant or that's obvious in the field of attention. So sometimes, of course, one may come back to the breath once in a while um, as a place of stabilizing the mind, but then it opens again to whatever else is happening. So because Vipassana is taking these changing objects, um, and which includes awareness too, the experience of Vipassana is not one of great calm and delight. So there's this always this changing nature happening. Thoughts, the breath, bodily sensations, relief, wanting, joy, aversion, you know, sometimes a bit of bliss, a bit of uh, rapture. It just kind of goes up and down on the spiral of experience, up and down, up and down on this spiral, depending on, you know, how continuous your, your practice can be. So the subjective experience in vipassana is it can feel disruptive, uncomfortable, and really painful. It cannot stay on anything very long. And so one thinks our practice is going backwards because there's no calm, there's no tranquility. But actually there's just enough to stay on whatever is being seen in that moment-to-moment changing nature of it. We think practice is falling apart but that's the wrong evaluation during that time. It's important during particular times in our practice to not judge our practice at all. Just to report it. You know, usually we could come in and say, oh, my practice is not good, it's falling apart or whatever. But when you just, when you explain your practice, when you really say what's going on or the teacher asks you, well, what happens in it? You know, how do you experience that? Can you put the story aside and just experience what happens in the body and the mind when that happens? And then um, just opening to what's going on moment to moment and more like an elemental level, not at the conceptual level. So um, actually your experience can be really good practice and it's important to have a guide at that time. Because somebody who's been there will say, no, you, you're really doing well, it's okay. Just keep going. Just keep going. Or if you have had a teacher like we have had, um, he would say, please continue. And that means you're doing okay. You know, Upandita would kind of throw a little crumb. I would <laughs> I, when that first happened, I, I went to Sharon and I said, Sharon, he just keeps saying, please continue. And she said, that means you're doing okay. It means he doesn't have anything to, to um, advise you about. What you said was okay. All right, so I just keep going. <laughs> you really learn to be strong when you don't have to have somebody to hold you together. <laughs> so... Um, this was um, that revealing the true nature of reality is not easy to see. It's really not easy to see because it's like what we think was, like what I read from that quote in the beginning, what we think was 
was life and how we saw it, it, we're seeing it differently. And from time immemorial, from this whole time of our birth, or if you're a person who can go before that, you know, from other world cycles that you may have lived in, from time immemorial, the mind has seen it from a certain viewpoint. And now it's seeing it from a completely different viewpoint, and it really shakes the mind up. So I was just, in May, I was at a retreat with Utejaniya in California, and uh, there was a yogi, there was always group interviews, and so it was really interesting, because I got to, you learn a lot, I got to hear how a lot of people's experiences are, and then Utejaniya has always this kind of incredible wisdom mind, you know, that gives an answer in a way like, whoa. You know, he just doesn't say, please continue. He fills it out. <laughs> so it's wonderful for me. So the yogi was saying, Seidao, I think I'm going crazy. The mind can't settle on anything. I'm paraphrasing. But he did say, I think I'm going crazy. He did say that in the beginning. Who I think I am is not who I thought I was. Everything's disappearing. Each part that awareness goes to, it's like that doesn't stay. It's just like, you know, it's just like going through air all the time. And he was really shaken up, you know. So Utejaniya said, you were crazy before. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're wise. And I thought, and the guy just, you know, perked up, you know, and I thought... Wow, he gave him a lot of confidence just saying that. You were crazy before. I I would never have the courage to say that to somebody. (laughs) Now you're really wise. And so so that person was really good in his his descriptions of what was going on. He just felt like, oh, I'm headed on the right path. You know, then he could describe everything. It was really interesting to see. So... When we cut through the story of who we think we are and we cut through, um, you know, what's going on, the concept of what's going on in this life, you know, what happened to me, what I did to them and all of that. I mean, it's pretty solid. The world is pretty solid. I, I know I live in that world too. But then when this, this kind of thing happens, when the moment-to-moment awareness arises and the mind starts seeing through the experience over and over and over again extraordinary facets of our, our minds begin to be known when it cuts through that solidity of the thinking process. So what's that realization? What's that seeing through the old reality, the old view is that in each moment, it's really clear that there is the experience and the knowing of it. That's something that becomes really clear to the mind. There's this that's happening, the, either the six sense bases or the four foundations of mindfulness or the five um, khandas. The, um, and then there's a knowing of it over and over and over again. The object or the experience and the knowing of it are distinctly different experiences from one another. This is a kind of um, a watershed moment in a person's, in a yogi's experience. And it's the very beginning of the deepening of insight. And then the yogis, yogis may be able to see this with a very calm mind or it could be very scary to see this. It depends on how, that's why the calm, the tranquility, the tranquilizing parts of the factors of enlightenment are really important to develop in our practice. And sometimes it shakes a person up. And then also a yogi begins to see the conditionality of all of life, that a meditator realizes that experientially it's not by um, understanding it secondhand, but it understands experientially that everything that arises is due to different changing conditions coming together. So everything coming together, each one of the um, conditions that arise, 
the sense of the body, the memories that come in perception, sense of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, a sense of um, intention or um, all the proliferation of the mind, even the knowing factor of the mind, everything that arises, that comes up, that we have put together and made a sense of self out of, is seen moment by moment. And so there's no way that the mind can put together that this moment that arose that completely is um, arising, changing, and passing away with other moments of maybe different parts of those um, five experiences that we have or the four um, satipatthanas uh, or the six sense doors they're seen so ephemerally that there cannot be a sense of self in any combination of them or in any one of them by and of itself. And so that is realized without, that's seen very, very clearly. Nothing really permanently exists in and of itself or in combination with anything else. So this, the conditionality of life is seen so clearly. Um, And it goes without a doubt (laughs) that that's happening. I love this writing by Trungpa Rinpoche. He talks about the experience of oneself relating to other things is actually a momentary discrimination, a fleeting thought. If we generate these fleeting thoughts fast enough, we can, erect, we can create the illusion of continuity and solidity. Like watching a movie, the individual film frames are played so quickly, they generate the illusion of continued movement, so we build up an idea, a preconception, that self and other are solid and continuous. And once we have this idea, we manipulate our thoughts to confirm it, and we are afraid of contrary evidence. It is this fear of exposing this or the denial of impermanence that imprisons us. It's only by acknowledging impermanence that there is a possibility of appreciating life as a creative process. So because of this continuity of the momentum of practice, it's building this strength and it's able to pierce through, to penetrate the the veil of this illusion of solidity, the compactness, the solidity of the body, of uh, perception, of feelings, of consciousness, of um, everything is seen so, so clearly. So when experiences come up in the body, they're just elements, a feeling of hardness or softness, the earth element, Vibration, swaying, or even stiffness in the body, that's the air element. Fire element is cold or hot, and uh, range in between that, it's temperature. There's a water element, what binds everything together. It can be experienced as kind of a heaviness sometimes. It's all changing. It's all changing. And there can be no denial of that change. So everything that makes up this mind-body continuum is seen as, like Manindra says, and this is where Joseph gets that phrase, empty phenomena rolling on. Empty phenomena rolling on. So ephemeral, yet so powerful. So there's this unceasingly arising, changing, dissolving into nothing, And there is this insight into impermanence. It begins to deepen. And so like in the Diamond Sutra, the experience is very um, clear. So should you regard this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. It's really... you. You hear that in your practice and you see that's true. That's really true. So 
<clears throat> this is a very scary part of life uh, in in practice, and um, when cannot stay on anything for a moment, everything's fading away, says transient, dissolving, vaporizing, disappearing, seeing the ending, it's like vapor. And um, the unstable nature of everything begins to be revealed. And um, I found this beautiful just by kind of looking at for something else on the web. I found this parable of the trapeze that um, it's told and I think it's been told in, in other ways where, you know, when you're on one of the trapezes and you, you're waiting to s- catch hold of the other one, this person, Danan Perry, told, um, gave this um, writing on it. I'm not saying the whole thing, just the parts that relate to this particular deep part of practice. For a few moments in my life, I'm hurtling across space in between trapeze bars. Most of the time, I spend my life hanging on for dear life to my trapeze bar of the moment. It carries me along at a certain steady rate of swing and I have the feeling I'm in control. But every once in a while, as I'm merrily swinging along, I look out ahead of me into the distance and what do I see? I see another trapeze bar swinging towards me. It's empty and I know it is the next step. It's my growth. It's my aliveness coming to get me. In my heart of hearts, I know that. For me to grow, I must release my grip on this present well-known bar and move to the new one. I know that I must totally release my grasp on this old bar, and for some moment of time, I must hurtle across space before I can grab onto the new bar. It doesn't matter that in all my previous hurdles across the void of unknowing, I've always made it. Perhaps this is the essence of what the mystics call the faith experience. No guarantees, no net, no insurance policy, but you do it anyway because somehow to keep hanging on to that old bar is no longer on the list of alternatives. I soar across the dark void of the past is gone, the future is not yet here, and I might add, and the present is always changing. So there's more, but that's enough on that. (laughs) This was said by Anonymous. (laughs) We cannot discover new oceans unless we have the courage to lose sight of the shore. So everything is fading away. Everything's unstable. It's like the uncontrollability is so heightened. And um, it's really hard to stay with what really is. Everything is fading away. The sense of self, the past, the future, the present moment. Nothing is stable. And the mind lets go of the notion of permanence and sees deeply the truth of impermanence. It abandons the wrong view of permanence in this moment. And because of this, there's a very deep understanding of dukkha, It comes as an insight knowledge. Dukkha means a lot more than suffering. Because everything is continuously and unceasingly changing, one understands with great compassion the unreliability of life as a whole or any part of it or any situation to provide lasting or enduring happiness or peace. It has to be beyond that. So the first noble truth is realized during those moments. And also from the basis of insight into impermanence comes the insight knowledge of anatta, uh, anatta, not self, the characteristic of all of existence. We, by the way, do not lose sight of there is a sense of self in this relative world that needs to be kind, that needs to understand and work in alignment, live in alignment with the cause and effect relationship of life. That is not abandoned at all. That is honored and kept. But there's also the understanding of anatta, that there, 
seen more deeply that there is nothing that we can hold on to as self, really. But sense of self, we have to have that operate in the world, in kindness, in understanding. So it comes as an insight knowledge, this not-self characteristic. And as a Buddha said to his son, Rahula, develop meditation on the perception of impermanence. For when you develop meditation on the perception of impermanence, the conceit, I am, will be abandoned. So this is insight into that not-self characteristic, and it comes very organically from the practice. It sees deeply into that understanding. So eventually, we see that all compounded things are as they really are, impermanent, unsatisfactory because of being impermanent. That's a dukkha part. And with wisdom, it sees all of this as anatta, as the sees a not-self characteristic in all of this. So the mind and heart is no longer under the spell of ignorance. This is wisdom. And becomes disenchanted with what was previously enchanting. The mind of clinging and craving and holding on to any experience gets relinquished. And profound equanimity begins at that time. That anything that arises, the mind can just be with and it does its the all sankharas arise and pass away arise and pass away this is called sankhara upeka the equanimity towards all formations so there's no reactivity to any experience at all at any six sense doors and there's a deep deep spacious balance that occurs and during this phase of experience of meditative experience it said that This is how the mind of an arahant is like, a fully enlightened being during this time period. And so it's like, it's kind of beyond any kind of um, peace or understanding that one has experienced before. It doesn't mean that one is an arahant, a fully enlightened being. But one understands, as the Buddha said, form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. What is impermanent is unsatisfactory. What is unsatisfactory is uncontrollable. It's not self. There is a liberating realization that there is nothing at all that can be clung to. And there's a deep, deep letting go. All formations, nothing can be held on to. And they're seen with great clarity. The force of that continuity becomes very powerful. The direction towards greater freedom is inevitable. It cannot stop that from going into the unconditioned. It has such great force during that time. From conditioned relative reality, it's going towards the unconditioned. It inclines the mind there, and it's a very natural direction. From that strong momentum, it's said to leap into the unconditioned. It's a word used synonymously with Nibbana, and that is the goal of the holy life, that relinquishing of all formations and to really deepen into seeing that all greed, hatred, and delusion can be let go of. Step by step, bit by bit, in phases, too. So Nibbana means extinguishing of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's a cooling out. When the heart is completely free from all obscurations and it's able to see life from a place of that kind of liberating wisdom. Nibbana is described as an ineffable experience because It is beyond conceptual understanding. There is no words in this relative reality that can describe it. It's beyond words of description because it's a cessation of all conditioned experience. It's beyond imagination, beyond formations, beyond knowing. 
And here are the Buddha's words um, from that, for that. It's from the Udana. There is, monks, an unborn, an unbecome, an unmade, an uncompounded. If there were not this unborn, unmade, uncompounded, then there would be no deliverance here from visible, from here, visible from that which is born, made, compounded. But since there is the unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded, a deliverance is possible from that which is born, become, made, compounded. Now these may be words that are like kind of don't make sense in a way. You can't kind of, because you can't put them in relative reality um, terms. Um, During this time that I've been here, I've been editing one of the... um, important writings of our grandfather, one of our grandfather teachers, Mahasi Sayadaw, the teacher of Manindra, the teacher of Shwayumin, the teacher of um, Ujjanika, the teacher of Upandita. And um, these are um, Mahasi Sayadaw's words. Nibbana is simply the cessation of mental and physical phenomena that becomes manifest as a signless to a noble one. A noble one is one who experiences the unconditioned. So although one has experienced it, one cannot describe it in terms of color or form or say what it is like. It can only be experienced or described as a sensation or end of all conditioned mental and physical phenomena. In the um, questions of Melinda, it is shown in this way when... um, this King Melinda asked the Buddha, um, what is Nibbana? The Buddha said, O oh, great King, Nibbana is incomparable. It cannot be described in its color, shape, size, dimension, likeness, remote cause, immediate cause, or any other logical way of thinking. Nibbana is said to be the, sens- the sensation, liberation, non-arising, or non-existence of conditioned phenomena. It's also, as um, Mahasi says, it's also said that Nibbana has no color, form, or size. It cannot be described using a simile, although people try. Because of these points, one might believe that Nibbana is nothing and think that it is the same as a concept of non-existence. But it is absolutely not like the concept of non-existence. It is obvious that it has a nature of cessation, liberation, non-arising or non-existence of conditioned phenomena. So it's a extinguishing of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. So, as the Buddha said, I will teach you the far shore, the subtle, the difficult to see, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the secure, the destruction of craving, the amazing, the unailing Nibbana, the island, the shelter, the refuge, Nibbana. So this is a realization of our highest potential as human beings, our birthright. Um, This potential exists in every one of us as women and men, old or young, uh, from any culture. It's available for those who wish to use the energy to, your energy to develop the path. If you open to the possibility, your life will incline in that direction. So even if it's not comprehensible to you now, bit by bit, as you do your practice, it will come to you that this is possible. So, as our teachers would say, don't stop short and keep going in your practice. So let's um, just let all those concepts dissolve and just be with the essence of the possibility.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.